I was glad when they said unto me, let us get out of the 30 inches of snow in New York City and come to abundant life in the Bay. Amen. Uh, Brother Arshel, I've got to call you out. I, I think you mi mixed your metaphors there. I think it's the apple that doesn't fall that far from the tree. Well, good morning. It is great to be here with you. I am so excited to be able to stand and uh, share God's word with you. I bring you greetings. I uh, miss my, my girl, my bride, uh, Corey. We're going to be celebrating 17 years of marriage this year. That's my girl. I think the last time I was here, I, I told you I saw her in church. In fact, uh, one of my dear friends, uh, Hyrie Brown, is here. Good seeing you. And uh, we came up together at a church in Los Angeles called Faithful Central Bible Church. Bishop Ulmer, uh, Kenneth Ulmer is my pastor. And uh, it was such a, a sh sheer delight. It would be helpful if I had my microphone on. Is that better? Got it? All right. Sorry, sound guy. It was on my shoulder. Uh, but it is, uh, it's, a, it's a delight to be here with you. I met my, my girl, Corey, in church. She was a new believer. And like I told you last time, I decided to be a part of her spiritual growth strategy. And uh, 17 years later. And um, our boys yesterday, Corey was sending me pictures and video. They were uh, sledding in Central Park. And uh, they, were just, uh, they were just having a great, great time. So I look forward to seeing them tomorrow morning, Lord willing, and uh, to be able to be with them and to hang out with them. I give honor to, uh, to God for the elders of this church. Uh, you all have been blessed. blessed greatly with uh, God-fearing men of God and uh, who love Jesus and who love you and are shepherding and stewarding the body well and to the pastors of this church and to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is just so, so good to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you're old school, you'll be turning there. If you're a new school, you click on an app. Uh, and get there directly. Uh, years ago, there was a singer by the name of Alita Adams, and she sang a song in which she declared, I don't care how you get there, just get there if you can. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8. As I was thinking about and praying about what is it that I should share with this church, uh, what is it that God wants me to declare to you this morning? I, um, last time I was here, I gave a very personable word. Um, I shared with you on the precious pearl of patience and the importance of being patient. And if my wife were sitting on the front row hearing me talk about patience, she would give me the side eye. And say, mm-hmm, you need that word. That's a word for you right now. Um, but uh, I want to I do something different this morning. Instead of just giving a personal word, I want to give a corporate word. I want to share a word with us about the church and what should we expect from God's bride and the local church. I want to talk this morning from the subject, the church you've always wanted the church you've always wanted. Meet me in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Luke is writing this, and he says these words. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Last verse. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Father, I do pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that it would produce great fruit. God, I pray as my grandmama used to say, Lord God, put shoe leather on your word. Show us, Lord God, the way in which we should walk in it. Don't just stuff our heads with more information, but fill our hearts, Lord God, with the way in which we should go. May we leave here, Lord Jesus, not just more informed, but more transformed and conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus. It is to that end, Lord, that I invite you to stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my tongue those things you would have us know, say, and do. As the old preachers used to say, hide me behind the cross, so that when people see me, they would see Jesus. It is to that end I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. In 1857, there was a businessman, a Jesus-loving businessman, who had spent a lot of time also on the mission field. And he had ended his tenure on the field, was back in New York City, and surveyed the sociological landscape of my city, New York, and was very disheartened by what he was seeing. He saw a godless place where people were doing what was right in their own eyes. People were showing no fear of God. People were not walking in the ways of the Lord. And his heart was broken, and he wanted to see God's Spirit poured out on that city, New York, as never before. As a follower of Jesus who was acquainted with his Bible and church history, he knew that nothing of significance happens without prayer. 
So he decided that, God, I want to see you unleashed in magnificent and powerful ways. And so he decided to call a prayer meeting. He invites six individuals in 1857, I believe it was September of 1857, to meet him at 12 p.m. there in the afternoon during their lunch break at a local church. 12 o'clock came, no one showed up. 12.05, no one showed up. Round about 12.20, this disheartened businessman, once missionary, figured that no one was going to show up. And right as he gets up to leave, all six businessmen began to trickle in. They prayed for the next 40 minutes, from 12.20 to 1 o'clock, beseeching and begging God to pour out and manifest himself in fresh ways. They asked God to do a work of that old term that we would call revival. We might call it renewal right now. God, would you just sweep through this city? God showed up in that little prayer meeting and one, one o'clock struck and they had to go back to work. They turned to each other and said, this is so rich, we'll do it again next Wednesday at 12. The next Wednesday came along and more business people showed up and they prayed for an hour. God, manifest yourself in sharp ways, in significant ways. Pour out your spirit. Draw people unto you. And they prayed for an hour. And at the end of that hour, they said, well, do it next week. And next Wednesday came and more people came. And next Wednesday came and more people came. And before they knew it, 3,000 business people were taking their lunch break Fasting from food and praying in this church in New York City. As the weeks went on, more and more people came and revival began to sweep all throughout New York City and our nation. In fact, at the height of this revival, some 50,000 people per week were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. All because the people of God decided to believe a big God and to have him pour out himself in fresh and powerful ways that would blow their minds. I don't have time to give you the stories, but there's stories of people who didn't know Jesus just walking by churches where people were praying at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, sensing something, and all of a sudden weeping uncontrollably, trickling into the church and giving their heart and life to Jesus. Christ. One such story is told of a young man who um, was on his way to kill his cheating lover. When he walked by this church in the sovereignty of God, where the people of God were praying, he walked in and began to weep uncontrollably and gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. This would be recorded as the business person's revival. Business people begging God to do huge things in godless cities. One of the pastors told me the other day that there is no documented revival or renewal here in the Bay Area. Well, I'm here to tell you the same God who did it in 1857 is the same God who can do it in 2016. And the way that God will move is when the people of God are insane enough to fall on their face and ask God to pour out his spirit in fresh ways. I don't know about you, but every time I even hear and tell this story, there is, there's something in me that longs for that. There's a holy unrest in me that just breaks out, and there's a discontentment with church as usual. 
I'm not anti-church. I grew up in church, but I'm just here to tell you, we're not seeing that kind of power in our churches. I long to be a part of a church that experiences the undeniable, unleashed, unfettered power of God poured out. I, I often tell people who ask me, well, pastor, what is your church? What, what is your vision for your church in New York City? I, I always tell them, honestly, if I can just capture in a bottle just a little bit of what they had in Acts, I'll be content. Read the book of Acts. Acts is written by um, uh, Luke. He is, a, he is a historian, and he's just tracking what God is up to in the book of Acts. And what we discover in the book of Acts is the gospel unleashed. In order to understand the book of Acts, you got to go back to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks a rhetorical question to his disciples. He says they're on the side of a hill overlooking the city of Capernaum. He says, who do men say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter and Matthew, excuse me, Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, that's right, Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I'm up to something. I'm building my church. And people of God, we need not fear the enemy or the world, because victory has already been declared. That's why I love what my friend Chip Ingram says. If you are part of the, the body of Christ, we don't work for victory. We work from victory. Victory has already been declared. God is just saying, I want you to walk in what is already yours. And this is what the church does in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus in a little upper room says these words, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the uttermost parts of the world. This is the rest of the book of Acts. It is simply Luke giving an eyewitness account to the unfettered, unleashed, unstoppable force known as the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel. 3,000 people get saved, and they're people from every nation under the heaven. It is a multi-ethnic cohort of people who get together in this thing called the church of Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see them doing is Luke tells us that they began selling their possessions and giving to each as they had need. So that the church of Jesus Christ started out as being multi-ethnic and multi-class. But not only that, if you track with the, the first church, one of the things that we see them doing is taking care of the poor. The church did not outsource the poor in their community to the government. The first church would not have been complaining about Obama's Affordable Care Act. Why lean on government to do what you're supposed to do in the church already? So the church had this passion to take care of their own. This is what the church did. But sadly, this is not what the church is about today. The undeniable truth about the church today is we have thousands of more churches and more locations with 
more educated ministers and pastors and leaders. We've got MDivs and demons and PhDs, but a fraction of the power. We have all these staffs and all these podcasts and all these buildings and all these ministries and all these programs with a fraction of the power. Something's missing in the body of Christ today. And I'm here to tell you, if you came just to sit and get spiritually obese and go back the way you were, if your community is not being changed, if abundant life could just put up a for sale sign and, and fold up shop and no one in the community would feel your absence, something's wrong. What did God mean when he created the church? How can abundant life experience the full-on power of God? How can Trinity Grace Church in New York City experience what they experienced in Acts? Our text points us to three things, abundant life, you must be committed to. As our text opens up, we're introduced to a man called Simon. Luke tells us that Simon practices magic. Now, this isn't, um, this isn't David Copperfield kind of magic. This isn't, um, you know, standing along on the boardwalk with three cards on a, on a little desk, kind of shuffling around, having you pick out uh, the right card kind of magic. No, this is a satanic kind of magic. This is a kind of magic we would, we would call dabbling in the occult. And Simon is flourishing in it. Which means Simon has an otherworldly, supernatural kind of power. People see this power that Simon has and their minds are blown. They're so blown that the Bible says that they are amazed at his gifting. And his gifting garners a following. And not only that, but if you could just read in the white spaces of our text, you would also see this about Simon, that Simon is a charismatic person. He's got this effervescent personality. He's just the kind of, he's kind of like my youngest son. My youngest son, Jaden, is just the life of the party. Uh, he's an extrovert. Um, you know, the worst thing you could do to him is send him to his room and isolate him. Uh, Jaden has got 700 best friends. That's Jaden. Uh, the other day after practice, uh, there on 92nd in Amsterdam, um, Jaden talked me into taking him to a local pizzeria uh, and getting him a slice of pizza. So we walked into this place called Little Italy on 92nd and Broadway. And we walk in there, and the workers behind the counter was like, Jaden! I'm like, what in the world is going on? Just this otherworldly, never met a stranger kind of personality, and that's Simon. He's this charismatic personality with this otherworldly gifting, and you put those combinations together, a crowd is going to assemble. But then our text says, in the middle of this comes a simple man named Philip. Philip is a part of that group called the disciples, and they were laughed at for being unlearned, uneducated. The Bible says all Philip does is he just shows up one day, and he preaches a simple message. 
This message is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and it is rooted in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Bible says that these individuals stop following Simon and they follow Philip. Just preaching a simple message and the church begins. Abundant life, how do you experience first century power? This ministry must be focused and centered on a Christocentric message and not a charismatic otherworldly man. We live in a celebrity culture where you've got charismatic personalities and who can say it and I'm not minimizing gifting. You're looking at a person who's gone to 10 years of school, and I, I want to steward what God is giving me, but I want you to understand, God forbid if in New York City, people are coming to that church ultimately because of me. There's no power inherently in who I am, but there's power in the Christ I proclaim. And what I must constantly do is redirect people's attention, lift their focus from a gifted human to a God Savior. This was Paul's ministry. There's an astounding passage of Scripture that I want us to look at. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is writing the Corinthians, and if you've been around church, you, you understand that Paul, um, the Corinthians gave him fits. They absolutely gave him fits. And, and what Paul is doing is he's, he's explaining to them, he's pulling them into his ministry philosophy. And what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is astounding. Listen to this. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message, here it is, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know what Paul is saying? I intentionally, Paul said, when I came and labored among you, I intentionally didn't use big words. I intentionally didn't use flowery illustrations because at the end of the day, my illustrations won't save you. Paul is not anti-illustration. He's not anti-using nice speech. What he is for is the gospel. And Paul is so committed to the gospel and seeing people tethered to Jesus Christ that he was sensitive to getting in the way of what God wanted to do. I love the game of golf. There's got to be golf in heaven. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. In fact, when I got called in, to go to New York City, me and God had a long talk because I understood my golf game was going to severely suffer between October and roundabout April. Uh, all right, I love golf. And I remember when I was first um, taking up the game of golf, my swing coach was watching me out on the driving range. And he came up to me and says, um, young man, you've got a problem. I said, I know that. That's why I'm paying you like 30 bucks for a half hour for lessons. 
I said, what's my problem? He says, you're swinging too hard. I said, what, what, what do you mean by that? He explained to me the way the golf club is designed in principles like centrifugal force and how this club is weighted and how golf is actually counterintuitive. The harder you swing, the ball doesn't go as far. But he said these words, if you'll just let the club do the work, if you will just release the club, the ball will actually go further. What, what Paul and Luke is saying to us is, when it comes to the gospel, Brian, you don't have to swing that hard. Let the club do the work. Jesus has been working for over 2,000 years. And long after I'm dead, he'll still be working. Abundant life, how will you experience first century power? May this ministry not be rooted in a charismatic personality, but may it be rooted in a Christocentric, Christ-centered message. But now there's something else. Our text tells us that um, these individuals get saved, and then word gets back to headquarters in Jerusalem, and, and Peter and the disciples are curious. Uh, are we sure they're saved? Because here, here's the gospel going to places it has not gone before, so we need to know. The text tells us they then dispatch some, um, some apostles to check on their salvation. They check on their salvation, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. We don't know exactly what the Holy Spirit does, but the Holy Spirit is so tangible, it is so evident that Simon sees something and decides to go, I want to pay for that. I want that. And that's where Peter says, may you perish with your silver. What's the second mark of a church that experiences first century power? It experiences undeniable Holy Spirit power. It is a church that is marked by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be careful to say this, but one of my complaints with modern-day evangelicalism is we have reduced the Trinity to being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. I'm not anti-Scripture, I'm for Scripture. Be in the Scriptures. How can a young man keep his way pure, Psalm 119 says? It's by walking in the Word of God. I bathe myself in the scriptures. I teach the scriptures. And I want to walk in the scriptures. It is living and active, the writer of Hebrews says. It is a mirror, James tells us. Psalm chapter 19 tells us it is sweeter than, than honey to us. This is the word of God. Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. May we be bathed in the scriptures. But in being bathed in the scriptures, may we not forget to be filled with the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit of God. If you study just Luke, Luke gives careful attention to the Holy Spirit. If you just read throughout the Gospel of Luke, he's constantly talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with who Jesus is. Some 36 times, Luke links the Holy Spirit with Jesus. His point is this, even the Son of God did not do ministry detached from the Holy Spirit. 
When the angel shows up in Luke chapter 1 and tells Mary that she will be the one who will birth the Messiah, Mary says, how will this be? He says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into the synagogue one day and unfolds the scroll and he reads of himself that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. It is impossible to read Luke and not come away with a sense of Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more so do we? And now in the book of Acts, we see that the great secret to the power of the church was not found in her education. It was not found in her sophistication. It was not found in her ministry programs. It was found in the fact that this was a people dependent upon the Spirit of God. And when you went to church in the first century, there was this sense of holy expectation of waiting for the Spirit of God to show up and do something. Part of my concern with many of our churches is we are so programmed that I wonder if we have programmed the Holy Spirit right out of our presence. And what does God do? When God saves you, you were saved by the Holy Spirit. You were baptized, placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. You were given gifts by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us, do not be drunk with, drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that Greek word for filled. It is the Greek word pleroma. It was used of a pregnant woman, and not just any pregnant woman, but a pregnant woman in her last trimester of pregnancy. I'm talking show enough pregnant. I'm talking can't get comfortable at night pregnant. I'm talking can't bend down and tie your shoes pregnant. There's no guessing. It's almost as if pleroma means, go ahead, Brian, ask her when the baby is due. Be bold, because it's clear. And it's that word Paul uses. He says, Brian, may you be so filled. Play Roma with the Holy Spirit. There's no guessing about you. It's just clear. You are overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that 95% of the problems in our marriage can be solved. Let me save you $150 an hour seeing a counselor, not anti-counseling. But let me just save you some money. Try walking in the power of the Spirit first. Dying to self, being filled with the Spirit, manifesting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So that the primary thing that the Spirit of God does in the life of the believer is now the Spirit of God bears fruit. That's primary. Gifting is good. Fruit is primary. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, you will recognize them not by their gifts, but by their fruits. It is a changed and changing lifestyle. The number one way you know that you're saved, it is not a prayer that was prayed, but fruit that is displayed. And every follower of Jesus Christ should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and conclude two things. One, I am not all the way where I should be, but two, I am not all the way where I once was. The Spirit of God is growing me and He is changing me. So Harry and I, as pastor, I don't mind um, sharing this with you, but Bishop Ulmer shared this um, in front of 13,000 people one Sunday. I'll never forget. He says, you know, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. 
But now since following Jesus being filled with the Spirit, I don't cuss that fast anymore. Now hear me, this is not saying it is okay to cuss, but what is he saying here? As I'm being filled with the Spirit, the more he's growing me and maturing me and changing me, I am not who I once was because I am filled with the power of the Spirit of God. And I'm not anti-spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are good, they are necessary, but even when you look at gifts in the book of Acts, gifts as tongues, they are always used in a missional component to point people to Jesus Christ. I remember when my wife and I were dating, this couple took us out to this really nice restaurant. And you know, I was a seminary student when I was dating my bride, Corey, which means I was Poe. <laughs> Not poor, I couldn't even afford the other O and the R. I was Poe, right? And uh, so we're sitting down at this place, I'll never forget, JJ's Steakhouse in uh, Pasadena right there on, uh, on Colorado, and we're sitting there, and um, we, we put in our order, and the next thing I know, they're bringing us sorbet. And I just say out loud, just so ignorant, I didn't order dessert. Why are they bringing me dessert right now? And my wife is kicking me under the table, and she's saying, keep your mouth shut. This is to cleanse the palate, to ready you for your steak. Those are the sign gifts, friends. Sign gifts are the sorbet. They, they ready us for the steak, but the steak is the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't revel in our gifts, but we use our gifts to build up the body and the power of the Spirit and point people to Jesus Christ. Abundant life, how do you walk in first century power? This church has got to be rooted not in a charismatic personality, but in the timeless Christocentric message of the cross. Secondly, it must be marked by undeniable Holy Spirit power. May people walk in this place who don't even know Jesus, don't even own a Bible, but something in their spirit says something is happening in here. But thirdly and finally, a church that is marked by first century power transgresses ethnic boundaries. Look at the last verse of our text. Let's go home on this one. It says in verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages, here's the key phrase, of the Samaritans. Samaritans are, the Jews referred to them as Gohim. They were half-breeds. They were ethnically different people. If you know anything about how the Jews viewed the Samaritans, there's racism here. That's why they looked at Jesus like he was crazy in John chapter 4 for stopping in Samaria, sitting down in the middle of town, having a conversation with an ethnically different person, a woman at the well. Jews so hated the Samaritans, they took the long way around them to avoid doing life with them. And yet Jesus models that if you've been reconciled to God through himself, you must be reconciled even to people who don't look like, think like, act like, or vote like you. This is the power of the gospel. And it blows my mind today how you can still drive down the street and go, that's the black church, that's the white church, that's the rich church, that's the poor church, that's the Republican church, that's the Democratic church. That is not the gospel that I believe in. 
John said, when I looked up into heaven in Revelation chapter 5, in heaven I saw people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue worshiping the Lamb. This is not just diversity for the sake of diversity. It has the lamb right in the middle of it. They are worshiping Jesus. And yet, how does John just on sight see ethnic difference unless he sees color? So I want to get with some of my, 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 my white friends. I say this completely in love. Don't subscribe to a colorblind ethic. I've had so many of my white friends come to me and say, oh, Brian, I don't see you as being black. And I want to say to them, repent for your lies. <laughs> I am a black man who's fearfully and wonderfully made, but I'm black. And as a black man, there's certain things. I have natural proclivities to not doing certain things. The guy who disciples me is a good old redneck white guy from the Ozark Mountains named Dennis Rainey. And Dennis has been discipling me for about 12 years. And Dennis said to me not too long ago, Brian, I just want to get with you. I'm going to pray some things over you. And maybe you can come here to Little Rock and, and, and we, can, we can go hiking. I said, as in walk through the wilderness? He said, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I said, it's a, Dennis, let me, let me break this down to you. There's certain things black people don't do. You want me to walk up that mountain? For what? And then once I get up there, how am I getting back down? Now, I know some of you guys are thinking, well, you're stereotyping and watch the Discovery Channel for a week and count how many brothers you see on the Discovery Channel. It's just not... That's just not how... You, like certain news stories, you know black people ain't had nothing to do with Man gets mauled by bear. Have you ever heard of Tyrone get mauled by a bear? You know, when the crocodile hunter died, me and all my black friends said, mm-hmm. Now, we might wear crocodiles, but we ain't gonna wrestle them. But that's just... You know, you know I'm, I'm, my wife's not even black. She's half Mexican, half Irish. But, you know, uh, we're, we're going on a cruise here in a couple weeks. And I said, honey, you can go scuba diving? She said, scuba diving? No, I don't. Like, Mexicans don't do that. And I know you black, y'all don't do that either. So why are you even bringing this up as a topic of conversation? That's just not how we roll. But here's the point. Y'all got me sidetracked. Here's the point. We're different. We are, we are different. And when I got saved, Jesus Christ did not eradicate my blackness, he just relegated it to his godness. So that I don't lead with my ethnicity. Now some of you guys are saying, well what about, what about Galatians when Paul says there's neither male nor female? He's not talking about difference, he's talking about value. We're all one in Christ. And now God saves us and he wants to put us inside this multi-ethnic, multi-class thing called the church. And he wants the church, the local church to be the venue by in which we live out this beautiful thing called reconciliation. I, I was just preaching down in Texas last Sunday and I told this all white church, I said the real power and the real question of Christocentric reconciliation, it's not can I be your brother in Christ, it's can I be your brother in law. They didn't, they didn't clap or shout. But shame on the church of Jesus Christ for voluntary segregation where we so readily divide. 
shame on some of us minorities who are so sensitive and filled with bitterness and waiting on our white brothers to say something they shouldn't say and then we take our ball and go home. This thing is messy and it's complicated. And when Paul walks into town to plant churches in the book of Acts, he's always got two questions. First question, where's the synagogue? I want to share Christ with the Jews. His second question is, where do the Gentiles hang out? Acts 17, and when he's in Athens, they say it's up there in the Areopagus, and he shares Christ with Jews and Gentiles. Now Jews and Gentiles get saved. What does he do? He doesn't start two separate churches. He says, now that you've been reconciled to God, I'm starting only one church. And I'm calling you to work this thing out to love each other, and it's messy. I mean, just, have you ever thought about why does Paul talk about food? If you read through the, why, if it's a homogenous church, food is not an issue. Eat your kosher meal and be quiet. <laughs> but in a multi-ethnic church, when the Jewish family gets invited over to the Gentiles family uh, house for dinner, and there's a slab of ribs, Houston, we have a problem now. So this thing is not easy. And that's why we went to Memphis. I planted a church in Memphis. I'll close with this. In 2003, I asked crazy prayer. Lord, God, send us to the toughest place to do a, a gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic church, and it was Memphis. Um, that's the place that shot Dr. King. That's a place that has a park in honor uh, to the founder of the KKK, and God says, that's right there. That's where I want you to start. It's a beautiful story. It started with 26 people. Next thing I know, over 2,000 people are coming to the church. It's a wonderful thing that's happened. Blacks and whites loving on each other. But it was messy. 2008 elections came, and literally, I'm shaking hands, and one person's wanting me to pass out Obama change we can count on buttons, and another person's wanting me to pass out McCain, Palin uh, uh, t-shirts. And part of me says, that's beautiful. I want a church filled with donkeys and elephants. I want that. I absolutely want that. May we not try to make each other into our own image. The question now becomes, how can we take our differences over secondary issues and yet still love one another? It is constantly being drawn to the gospel, constantly being drawn to Jesus, lifting our eyes above Fox News and MSNBC and CNN, and we've got to stop letting them disciple us. That's the church I want to be a part of. That's the church I want to join. That's the kingdom, friends. If you got a problem with diversity, you're going to have a problem with heaven. You're going to be sitting in the corner giving Jesus the side eye. Because that's heaven. And that's where we're going to be. And that's eternity. Why not get a head start on that now? Will you pray with me?